Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we are going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums from the most recent Rolling Stone Top 500 album list. All right. So, Bill, before we get to it, what episode are we on? Tony, we're on episode nine, and it's just hard to believe that we're on episode nine. I, I can't believe it. I really, you know, I think we've been doing this now for about three months and barely kind of yeah. did it on a whim. And here we are, episode nine. I think we decided that we were going to uh, call season one 10 episodes. Is that correct? That is correct. We, we had originally had aspirations to call season one 20 episodes, but we, we kind of uh, have rethought it and we're going to call season one 10 episodes. All right. So, you know, with this landmark season coming to a close, our first season, uh, I think you had a great idea for how we could commemorate the end of the season. So, Tony, we're going to go out in a blaze of 80s glory with a mixtape battle. So for anybody who didn't grow up in the 80s, the mixtape was a cassette and you really could get music easily to snip playlists together like our modern lives, right? So in modern life, you've got Spotify, or you've got Amazon Music, or you've got Apple Music, and you can easily put a playlist together and just choose the songs, choose the order, put them on random shuffle, listen to it wherever you want. Well, that didn't exist for, for Tony and I, and it didn't exist for any of us who grew up in the 80s. What we had was sitting and waiting for a song to be played on the radio and trying to catch that song and record it and then splicing that together with the songs that you really wanted to listen to. If you got really exotic, maybe you had a turntable and a cassette deck connected to each other and you would record something from your turntable onto your cassette deck and splice it together. But the mixtape was an art. And really what you would do is you put together a story with the songs that you wanted to listen to and you title your mixtape and you'd have a side one and a side two because just like albums, cassettes had side one and side two. And what we're going to do at the end of season one, at the end of our first 10 episodes, is Tony and I are going to make our own mixtapes of the songs that we chose over the course of the season from the 10 albums. So, And guess what, folks? It's going to be a competition. <laughs> if you haven't learned anything, Tony and I love competing against each other. So we are going to each have to choose 10 songs. Each album has to be represented on the mixtape. And we need to tell a story with our mixtape and we need to lay the mixtape out. Side one, five songs. Side two, five songs. And also, wait, just one clarification. We have to be selecting from songs that we picked in the drafts. Yes, that we have to actually choose from the songs that we selected over the course of the season. So we can only use songs that we had in our own drafts. So I can't use Let's Go Crazy because Tony had it in his draft. He can't use Purple Rain because I had it in mine. So th that's an example of how things will play out. So we're going to try to tell a story with the 10 albums and create a unified mixtape to kind of wrap up season one. We're really excited so about this. Totally. This is such a, a fun idea, at least fun for us. And we hope that you guys will think it's fun too. And when, and of course, we're going to ask for you to vote on the best mixtape and really just remember that it's not the best combination of songs. It's the best mixtape, which isn't the same thing. It's not the best list of songs. It's the best story that you're telling on that tape. So uh, please keep that in mind when you vote. 
And uh, definitely please also come up with your own mixtape ideas. We would love for you guys to send to us your own mixtapes from these uh, 10 albums. That, that would be awesome. So we, I'd love to hear what our listeners would put together mixtape wise and see how, uh, how we stack up against them. So. And, you know, this isn't totally retro because our buddy Taylor Swift, it wouldn't be a show if I didn't mention Tay-Tay. Uh, she's trying to bring back the cassettes, all of her albums. She's releasing them also on cassette. Uh, so, of course, you have to pay like triple for the cassette of, of Red. But, you know, cassettes are coming back just like vinyl has. Cassettes are back and we want to be part of that uh, with you guys. No A-tracks. All right, so- no A-tracks, though, Tom. <laughs> no, I, I I think that's where the line has been drawn. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. So with that, today's album is Thriller by Michael Jackson. Thriller was released on November 30th of 1982. And on the Rolling Stone 2003 list, it was number 20. It stayed at number 20 for the 2012 list. And then in the most recent list in 2020, it jumped up to number 12. So some basic sales information. Thriller is the best-selling album worldwide of all time. It sold over 70 million copies, and it's also the second best-selling album in the U.S., having sold 34 million copies. And do you know what the number one selling album of all time is? I do. It's that Eagles' greatest hit album, and and it's uh, that's a phenomenal album. And man, man, do the Eagles have their fans because they sell albums like nobody's business. So Thriller had seven singles, all of which were top 10 singles as well. So Bill, would you uh, tell us what was going on at the time in the world and in music? Oh, I would love to start talking about 1982. 1982, we were 11 years old, Tony. So this, let's go back in our way back machine uh, with, with Sherman and Peabody. And Ronald Reagan was the president. And cost of living wise, you have gasoline at 91 cents a gallon. And the average price for a new car was under $8,000. I, I just, I can't even fathom it. I mean, just to put that into context, I was just at the uh, baseball field and one of the dads was showing me a used bat that his son wanted, a used baseball bat, $1,100. Crazy. Yeah. So on the, on the science and technology front, we had the Commodore 64 computer, first CD player from Sony. The first computer virus in 1982 was a, a floppy disk virus for the Apple II. Uh, Tron was the first feature film to use computer animation extensively. Dolby came out with surround sound for home. And Time Magazine, with all of this proliferation in the, in the realm of computers, named the computer the person of the year in 1982. You also got a few things in science. You've got the first artificial heart, and you've got the first genetically engineered product, a human insulin being produced, which is really pretty cool. In movies and TV, a lot going on. So movies, you've got E.T., Tootsie, Officer and a Gentleman, Chariots of Fire, and Blade Runner. You've got Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, Tone. You know what that means. <laughs> I can't, can't think of that movie and not think of that line. You've also got the rise of some of those movies that would wind up becoming Skinamax or H- HBO late night movies, Porky's and the best little whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> uh, on TV, you've got Cheers debuts, Knight Rider debuts, TJ Hooker, Matt Houston, which was my favorite TV show of all time. Really? I love Matt Houston. Remington Steele, Voyagers, another great TV show. Uh, and Late Night with David Letterman debuted in 1982. 
I feel his, like you're missing. I'm sorry, but I feel like you're missing an important other television show that debuted in '82. Okay, all right. Bosom Buddies. I I missed Bosom Buddies. Yes, but in 1982, David Letterman's first guest on Late Night with David Letterman was Bill Murray, and he danced around to the song "Physical" by Olivia Newton-John. Did he? Do you know? Did you see any clips of that? Did he have leg warmers on? I, I I'm gonna have to see if I can find one, and if I can, I will share it. All right. In the sports world. The 49ers started their dynasty in 1982. It's their first Super Bowl and their first Super Bowl win. Montana wins the MVP. You've got NFL regular season strike happening in 1982 for the, for the actual 1982 season. Whitey Herzog, Dean Smith, and Pat Riley all win their first championships in 1982. Whitey Herzog in baseball, Dean Smith in NCAA basketball, and Pat Riley in, in the NBA. Jimmy Connors wins Wimbledon and the U.S. Open at age 30, beating McEnroe and Lendl. Cal Ripken starts the first game of his 2,632 game streak in 1982. And on sad note, Ray Boom Boom Mancini fought and beat Duck Koo Kim, who died five days after the fight. Eesh. And I remember that vividly. And it actually changed boxing rules dramatically after that fight happened. So that was something that was that was big at the time. In business, AT&T Monopoly is is broken up. Epcot is opened and DeLorean stops producing cars. So it was a really interesting time and very different time than, than we are right now. Yeah. And um, that translated into music as well. So we'll talk about the number one albums for the year. There were 10 distinct number one albums in 1982, which was when Thriller came out. Noteworthy is that Thriller is not among them. Now, granted, Thriller came out at the end of November. So maybe it just didn't have enough time, but you know, you would think as huge as it was, you would kind of think that it would be number one hit within the first couple of weeks that it came out, but it wasn't. And I think we're going to get to a little bit more about that uh, in something that you don't know. So the 10 number one albums for 1982 were for those about to rock. We salute you by ACDC foreigner four, Freeze Frame by Jay Giles Band, Beauty and the Beat by the Go-Go's, Chariots of Fire, Asia, which was the top-selling album of the year, Tug of War with Paul McCartney, Mirage with Fleetwood Mac, American Fool with John Cougar, and Business as Usual with Men at Work. And, you know, I just wanted to list all those out because when I look at that list, that's, a, you know, that's at least six of those albums I had uh, in my initial collection. And you didn't even mention 1999 by Prince, which was came out in 1982 as well, or Nebraska by Springsteen, which is a great album as well. So a lot going on musically in 1982. Yeah. So any other notables besides those two that you want to call out? Um, I would also say from the top 500 list, the, the uh, Chuck Berry compilation album, The Great 28. If you haven't listened to it, it's an awesome intro to Chuck Berry. It's got his 28 best songs. It's It's an awesome album. Okay. So then what else do we have? So we've got the single. So what was popular in uh, Top 40 Radio at the time? So what's interesting is you mentioned the Bill Murray appearance on Letterman. The top song for the year was Physical by Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> and if you, if anyone remembers that time, it's it's incredible how pervasive the whole leg warmers and headbands and that whole aerobics culture was. Yeah, so Physical was the number one song. The number two song was Eye of the Tiger from Rocky Three. I have a personal dislike for that song based upon some, some personal history that I choose to not get into, but I just don't like that song even a little bit. 
that's a tease. Am I going to get the personal history offline? I got to know. (laughs) All right. So I was not doing spectacularly in school and my mom gave me a poster on my wall of a tiger and, and said, I have the tiger. And like, every time I hear it, I'm like, I effing hate that song. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so physical and I, the tiger were, uh, not only the top two songs of the year, but for the entire eighties, they were the two songs that were in the top 10 for the longest uh, period of time. Both of them were in the top 10 for 15 consecutive weeks each. Not necessarily uh, the exact same 15, but I think they kind of, uh, there was some overlap. I think they came out right around the same time. So the two biggest songs of the 80s were those. And it just goes to show you that what's popular isn't necessarily what's lasting because I don't know anyone who cares to hear either of those songs. And yet that same year, 1982, some of the most enduring classic songs came out uh you you can't go anywhere without starting with don't stop believing that song has as as big as it was in 82 it's certainly bigger now in pop culture than it was back then yep then you've got some other uh, 80s classics you've got jenny 8675309 don't you want me tainted love i ran so far away by flock of seagulls Working for for the weekend. You, I mean, does a Friday ever come around without you hearing that song? Um, and then who can forget our uh, our buddy Stevie with Edge of Seventeen and Leather and Lace? There you go. So um, that's the musical landscape. Bill, do you want to expound a little bit on your personal history? My history with Michael Jackson really goes back to TV, and it starts with the Motown. 25 year special yesterday today and forever and i remember vividly seeing michael jackson perform on that special doing billy jean that's the one where he did the moonwalk first on television and it was like my head exploded and every the whole world's head exploded like everybody wanted to moonwalk everybody wanted to know how to do the moonwalk and oh my god how did this guy do this and then you cut to uh, late in the year in 83 when the thriller videos released on MTV and everybody was sitting in front of their TV waiting for this video. It was announced, it was promoted. Everybody knew it was coming. It was this special 14 minute long video. And it was a big thing. I remember exactly sitting on my couch. Like I almost remember what I was wearing. Like it it was that vivid of a memory. So for me, Michael Jackson and that thriller album specifically is right at the heart of my, you know, preteen years going, going on to becoming a teenager. And it really means a lot to me because it's, it connects a lot with, with my, my life experience. So that, you know, that album and Michael Jackson, it was really a key part of, of my life at the time and really me growing up as a teenager. I think I get what you're saying. Um, but I'll tell you, I don't have the same reaction. It's, it's definitely one of those things where it puts me in a particular place and time. Um, but it wasn't something that stayed with me. Like I had the album, I had it on vinyl. I listened to the songs, I watched the videos and, and that was great at the time. And a year later I was done with it. As a matter of fact, until I started listening to this album, uh, in preparation of the show, I don't know if I've heard this, this album in 30 years. I mean, it's just something that is not meaningful for me. Different perspectives. That's what makes the world go around, right? All right. So um, that brings us to some uh, facts about the album. So it was released, like we said, on November 30th of 1982. 
It was recorded from April 14th through November 8th of 82 in L.A., and it was produced by Michael and Quincy Jones. There's a total of nine tracks, and the total running time is just a hair over 42 minutes. So, you know, once again, just uh, keeping under that 44-minute mark for the uh, two sides of a vinyl record. So those are some of the details about the album. And then you've also got that cover art. Now, it was never anything that was particularly noteworthy to me, but it must have been, they must have been doing something right. Because when I was talking to Ellie, my 13-year-old daughter, uh, about the next show, she goes, is that the one where he has the white suit? So somehow or another, that image it's has iconic. been, has been yeah. burned on her brain. Yeah. Yeah. And something I just learned uh, preparing today was that that white suit wasn't even Michael's. It belonged to the <laughs> photographer. <laughs> How weird is that? That's odd, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, the photographer was a gentleman named Dick Zimmerman, and that was Zimmerman's white suit that Michael is wearing on the cover of Thriller. Just his, his cool guy vibe in a white suit, you know, just chilling. Yep. All right, so what can you tell us about Michael uh, and his background? All right, so let's just lay the groundwork for leading up to, to Thriller. So Michael Jackson, born August 29th, 1958, Gary, Indiana. He's the eighth child of the Jackson family. He made his professional debut in music in 1964 with his older brothers, Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, and Marlon. As a member of the Jackson Five, have you heard of them? Jermaine was supposed to be the lead singer, okay? So his father... Was not he? His father was really hard on Michael, and Jermaine was supposed to be the lead singer. He, Joe Jackson, the father, thought Jermaine had the talent, not Michael, and it just became really obvious that Michael was just absolutely the lead singer. And he kind of had, he, he kind of got forced into letting Michael be the lead singer. So Michael became the lead singer not through any uh, anything other than the fact that he was just ridiculously talented. Um, in 1966, they won a competition uh, that where they covered the temptations a year later, they won the talent night at the Apollo theater and Gladys Knight saw them. And between Gladys Knight, Bobby Taylor from another band and Diana Ross, they all kind of had a role in putting them in front of Motown and Barry Gordy ultimately said, I got to sign this group. This group is phenomenal. So they sign with Motown records and Motown decides to, promote them by effectively launching their career through Diana Ross. So they joined Diana Ross in a show in LA in 1969. And then their first album is Diana Ross presents the Jackson five, which is just kind of odd. It goes back to the, uh, who's Fleetwood Mac. Uh, oh yeah. Presented by <laughs> right? so-and-so or yeah. something. So it, it's just kind of odd. So uh, it's, it's, they tried to propagate this myth that Diana Ross found them and, and whatnot, which really was just marketing. So they were the first act to have their first four singles, I Want You Back, ABC, The Love You Save, and I'll Be There, reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. They had 17 top 40 singles. And over the course of them career-wise, Michael and a few of the brothers started to do solo stuff. So in the early 70s, Michael started to do solo stuff, but they were, very, they were still very much a band. But the Jackson Five really started waning success-wise in like the mid to late 70s. Uh, around 76, they were struggling and they decided to leave Motown Records and they went to CBS Epic. Everyone except for Jermaine, who stayed with Motown. So when they went to CBS Epic, they actually had to change their name 
kind of like a few other artists we've we've heard mm -hmm. about. Like Prince had to change his name to a symbol because he wanted to have creative control. Um, they changed their names to the Jacksons, and Randy Jackson replaced Jermaine. And the Jacksons were obviously still very much the, the largely the same group, but they couldn't use the name the Jackson Five because Motown owned it. Mm -hmm. So. Over the course of that period of time in the 70s, they were everywhere. They had a, a Saturday morning cartoon show as the Jackson 5. When they went to CBS Epic, CBS had a, a, the Jackson's Variety Show on, on CBS television, where it had everybody except for Jermaine. It even had LaToya and Janet on it. So it wasn't a very long-lasting long show, but it just shows you how pervasive the Jacksons were in that period of time. So cut to Michael trying to start his, his own thing on a solo career-wise, and he's putting out albums. You know, 72 was his first solo album, Gotta Be There. Wasn't very successful. It was a lot of covers. Um, his first real success as a solo came with the album Ben and with the, the song titled Ben from, from the movie. And he really didn't have much success solo-wise until Off the Wall in 1979. And that really started right after he did the movie The Wiz with Diana Ross, Nipsey Russell, and Ted Ross. So that, that movie, that 1977 movie, really springboarded him again into the, the public's eye. Even though the movie wasn't a, a huge success, it, it did have visibility. And that off-the-wall album, Working with Quincy Jones, was really his start, but it wasn't him leaving into the upper stratosphere. It wasn't him being a superstar. It was him having some success. Yeah, so so he's still not Michael Jackson, the icon at this he's, time. He, he's not. He had he's got a couple of hits off that off the wall album, which is a great album, mm -hmm. but it's not Michael Jackson that we know as this you know name that everybody in the world knows. Yeah, I'm I'm actually thinking about like looking at the discography and and the bio, and I feel like off the wall is almost a comeback story. It, it really is. If you look at his 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 solo albums. He wasn't going anywhere. I mean, the the Jacksons, there there were a couple of good songs on you know Destiny and Triumph, but they weren't really going anywhere. Off the wall was him really starting to become successful, and it really planted a flag in the ground and said, "Hey, I'm somebody who who has a chance to become somebody bigger as a solo artist." So okay, so does that about wrap up what you wanted to tell us about Michael? It it, it does, Tony, and I think it sets you up to talk about where Michael was as far as success and whatnot going into the thriller album. And I know we're going to move into our something you might not know section. And I think, yeah, I think it's uh, a, a perfect segue because, you know, the other thing that was happening in the late seventies, you know, at this time when we're talking about the Jackson's popularity starting to wane and Michael struggling to, to make a go of it as a solo artist. And this is, disco and then the subsequent death of disco and the backlash to disco. So as we get into the late seventies and then uh, move into the eighties, huge backlash against disco. People were just sick of it. And, you know, you could say what you want about the reasons. I mean, it's hard to say that it was completely bad considering how popular it was and some of the classic music by artists, both black and white, that came out of that time, as far as the disco era goes, you know, n nobody seems to be uh, harping on John Travolta and the Bee Gees. And yet somehow or another, disco became synonymous with 
black music, urban music, R&B music? It's really interesting because dis- disco is probably the one um, genre in my lifetime where I, I've, at least my perspective, where I've seen that the culture just completely revolted against it and like nobody wanted anything to do with it. And it was, it was almost like, oh my God, how did we ever like this? Right. So mm-hmm. it, it's just really interesting how, how that happened. Exactly. So now we get to 1982 and as this is happening, there just was a complete schism between black music and white music to the point where in 1982, there were only two songs that even made it into the top three on pop radio. And those two songs were Truly by Lionel Richie and then Ebony and Ivory by Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney. Two songs featuring black artists that made the top three for the entire year. And if you consider that Paul McCartney is who he is, it's really kind of only one song, right? So it's so strange for you and I, you know, we were just kids then. Yep. We didn't know any better. We didn't listen. We weren't listening to that much radio prior to this time. You know, as a matter of fact, I wasn't even listening to that much radio. I was listening more you know, MTV because MTV launched in was August of 81. 100% MTV was everything at the time. You know, yeah. so that's, you know, where you and I apparently, and I'm sure a lot of other people our age really got their music from. It wasn't from the radio. It was from MTV. So we don't know any better. All we really know is because that's we start watching right around that time. And then Michael Jackson comes out around that time. And then he breaks what was clearly a color barrier that we just didn't know existed because we were there right when it when it broke. And I I saw this really cool video um, that I didn't even know existed of uh, an interview with one of the MTV VJs interviewing David Bowie. And David Bowie asks him the uncomfortable question of how come MTV doesn't play black artists? And it was just a lot of hem, haw, mm, uh, you know, we're playing to what the country in the Midwest wants to hear and, 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 and it, it's, and Bowie just calls him out on it. And it's, it's really awesome. It's a great, great interview. And, and Bowie was awesome. So at this time, Michael Jackson isn't on MTV. You know why? Because nobody who's black is on MTV. Literally nobody except a, um, and I forget the name of the group, but they had a novelty song called Pass the Duchy. And they played like, a, it's like a reggae song. And I remember, frankly, I remember it well, yeah. You know, but it was all a bunch of kids. So it was kids singing. So it was kind of a novelty song and it wasn't in heavy rotation. So those were technically the first black artists on MTV. But besides them, Nobody else, nobody else, including Michael Jackson, was on MTV. And when Thriller came out and the Billie Jean video uh, was created, it wasn't on MTV. It only came on MTV once this the song became just too big of a hit that they couldn't resist it and they had to put it on MTV. Well, um, the the other the other thing that I read, Tone, is that the president of CBS. Mm-hmm. threatened to pull all of his music from MTV unless they played the video. That's right. So he basically put his weight behind Michael Jackson and said, look, you need to start playing his his music, his videos on, on this channel. And they had to cave. Yep. And still, that wasn't even enough to get pop radio in New York City. I mean, this isn't, you know, Omaha. This is New York City. Pop radio still wouldn't play Michael Jackson. Which I had, I, like, contextually, we were so young, I had no idea. Yeah. Like, I really didn't listen to PLJ. I 
after that had, I mean, I know PLJ very well as, as you do, right. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a huge radio station, you know, that was huge during the time pre Sirius XM and all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that that was going on. I had no concept of it. So, so they only finally relented and not even, they didn't do Billie Jean at least initially, but they relented and played beat it because Eddie Van Halen played the guitar solo on beat it. And they said, okay, well we can justify playing Michael Jackson because Eddie Van Halen has this guitar solo. And that's the cover that we're going to use to play freaking Michael Jackson. Well, and they, they all basically lived and died with a, well, we're rock stations. So we have to play rock music. Yeah. Because physical by Olivia Newton, John was really rocking out guys. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) such garbage yeah so finally uh beat it breaks through on pop radio and then billy jean and beat it uh break through on mtv but here's the thing so while cbs was forcing mtv to play the videos and as much success as they were having with it cbs didn't want to pay for a third video because they had a policy we don't pay for more than two video music videos so thriller wasn't paid for by the by the uh, by the record company. I, I think that leads into my something you might not know. Any any other topics? Nope, that's that, it. All right, awesome. So you left me perfect perfect spot, Tony. You took me right to Thriller. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So my something you know really is all around Thriller and the, specifically around the video. Um, so as Tony mentioned, the Thriller video didn't have funding, so CBS didn't want to pay for it and the budget that they had for the video that Michael Jackson wanted to do for the video was enormous. They wanted to spend almost a million dollars on the video and they had nowhere to get this money from. So Michael Jackson gets John Landis and John Landis, famous director who directed a lot, a lot of movies. And at the time, his big movie was American Werewolf in London. Mm -hmm. Um, And he gets John Landis and John Landis and Michael Jackson talk about it. And John Landis convinces Michael that Here's how we're going to fund the movie. We're going to make a making of Michael Jackson's Thriller. So they do a whole documentary as they're doing the Thriller video, and they basically self-fund creating the video, which is just absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching Thriller. I remember watching the making of Thriller. The making of Thriller was almost as cool as Thriller. So it was was really, really just an innovative way of, of thinking about it. So in the video Thriller, one of the things that I didn't know is when they come out of the movie theater, they're standing in front of a movie poster and the movie poster is like a monster movie. And I, I never really noticed the title of the movie, but if you, if you freeze it and you look at it or you get an image of the, the picture, the name of the, the name of the movie was Schlock. Um, and it was a John Landis movie. It was actually a real John Landis movie. And that movie was a kind of jokey monster movie where he, John Landis worked with a few other very big names, uh, one of which was John Chambers, another of which was Rick Baker. John Chambers was a huge name in makeup and in effects. And John Chambers was one of the actors in that movie. So it was like one of, it was the only movie he ever acted in. So he's on this billboard behind him. John Chambers was the only movie he ever acted in. John Chambers is the guy who did the special effects stuff that the CIA used to pull off the Iran hostage crisis thing. He's the guy who was the, the, the behind the whole Argo movie thing. Like that's, that's John wow. Chambers. And he's also the guy 
who invented Spock's ears. Like that, that's John Chambers. So that's him. And he's part of that schlock movie. On top of that, you've got Rick Baker and John Landis who really were just enamored and just huge John Chambers fans. So they decide to start spreading a rumor that John Chambers was behind the Patterson-Gimlin film. Are you familiar with the Patterson-Gimlin film, Tony? Not in the least. So the Patterson-Gimlin film is the Bigfoot footage. So if you YouTube the Patterson Mm -hmm. film and that old grainy video of Bigfoot running through the woods that they still can't figure out or debunk Mm -hmm. or whatever, they put the the rumor out there that it was John Chambers who who did the video which is not true whatsoever. Chambers like, that wasn't me. (laughs) They were just trying to build them up. So you've got that. Rick Baker is hot off working on American Werewolf in London. Rick Baker does all of the makeup and special effects for the thriller video. So Rick Baker would, would win the very first Academy Award for makeup for American Werewolf in London. So that was the in 19... 81, when the movie was done, it was the first year that they had that in the Academy Awards. He won the very first Academy Award for it. Cool. So they decide that they want to have Michael be a monster, but they don't want him to be a werewolf. They've done the werewolf thing. They don't want it to, they don't want it to be a werewolf. So what they make him look more like is a cat. So they try to make him look kind of cat-like, which when they, you know, he grows the, the whiskers and whatnot and, mm-hmm. and you know, the prosthetics that they do, they try to go after a cat-like look. So Rick Baker is incredibly prolific in and of himself. So Rick Baker worked on Star Wars. He worked on American Werewolf in London. He worked on Harry and the Hendersons. He's the guy who created that Harry and the Hendersons character. Uh, He worked on Coming to America. He did all of the special makeups effects in Coming to America, one of my favorite movies of all time. He worked on The Nutty Professor, did the special effects on that. Men in Black, The Ring. Hellboy. So this guy is just this incredibly prolific, prolific makeup artist. So Michael Jackson's got John Landis, who's this superstar director. He's got Rick Baker, who's this superstar makeup artist. He goes and adds a woman by the name of Deborah Nadelman, who does costumes. She was the costume designer for the Thriller video. She was also the costume designer for Raiders of the Lost Ark. The choreographer for the video... Michael Peters won a Tony for his work on Dreamgirls. He also choreographed the the dance sequences in Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield and the Beat It video. And he was one of the dancers in the Beat It video with the mustache and the knife fight. So so he's in that. A a little bit more around around the video. You've got original casting for the the female lead in in the thriller video was supposed to be Jennifer Beals. But they couldn't get her to do it. So they ultimately went with Ola Ray. And she was actually a Playboy Playmate. Uh, and that's how she kind of got seen and got, got cast on the set as all of this stuff is going on. And you've got this, this, you know, amazing crew of people working Marlon Brando showing up, rock Hudson showing up, Jackie O is showing up and Fred Astaire is showing up and they almost convinced Fred Astaire to perform in the video, which would have been just ridiculous. Yeah. And as I recall, Astaire was showing up because he was a big admirer of Michael's dancing. They, they were they were huge fans of each other. So yeah. ab- absolutely. And then the last piece I would mention is if you watch the video at the very beginning, you notice there's a, 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 a section where they do uh, like almost a disclaimer. Uh, and it actually kind of gave the video some 
you know, some, some heat to it. Like, oh my goodness, this is something, oh my goodness. They're, they're saying they're, they, they're disclaiming it. Well, the disclaimer came because Michael was a Jehovah's witness and he felt like he had to put the disclaimer on it. Otherwise it would be, oh my God, this is just terrible for my faith. So you've got all of these things coming together to make this thriller video. And I just think it's really cool. All right. And I, I have one little slight bonus if you, if you're interested. Oh, of course. All right. So we've talked over the season about artists being sued and artists having inspirations from others. Mm -hmm. So what would it be if we didn't have inspiration on this album, right? So there's a few places where Michael Jackson took inspiration on this album. None of them more so than in the song, Want to Be Starting Something. Michael straight admitted that he borrowed the lyrics from the 1972 single, Soul Mikasa, by a Cameroon saxophonist named Manu Dabango. And I didn't know that I knew the song, but when I actually listened to the song, I know the song. I've heard it. I've, I've heard it a lot. It's a, it's a known, you know, it's a good song. It's well known. And the lyrics in that song are Mamako, Mamasa, Mako, Makosa. And Michael changed it to Mamase, Mamasa, Mamakusa. Manu Dabango sued Michael Jackson. They settled out of court. Not the end of story, though, because in 2007, Rihanna sampled Michael in her song, Don't Stop the Music. So she went to Michael and she cleared sampling <laughs> Wannabe Started Something with Michael. Uh -huh. Michael said, oh, sure, you, you, can, you can play it. Absolutely. <laughs> she didn't clear it with Manu Dibango. <laughs> so, so he went after her and ultimately it was thrown out because uh, she actually gave credit on the album. And so it was thrown out. Okay. Well, I was actually going to talk about that when we got to the uh, tracks. Uh, so, all right, all right, sorry. So maybe that just you know, I think that's the next segment anyway. So why don't we just start us off there with "Wanna Be Starting Something"? Uh, you gave us the 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 bit on the Manu Dibango of it all. As far as the song itself goes, I got to say that, and I want to shout out my buddy Tommy Daps who texted me as. He was doing his show prep. Um, I'm so I'm so happy that people are actually listening to the albums before the shows, uh, as we suggested a couple of episodes ago. So, so Tommy Dapps texts me and he says, "Is there anyone less intimidating than Michael Jackson to be asking want to be starting something?" <laughs> and the I, only thing that's the only thing that's better is the fact that the whole premise of the of, of the song bad on the album and i know this is a thriller podcast mm -hmm. but the whole premise of the song bad was it was intended to be a duet between michael jackson and prince michael jackson wrote the song and he intended it to be a duet between michael jackson and prince and prince said i am not singing your butt is mine and you're not singing it to me so i'm not doing that song with you <laughs> and thus started the feud <laughs> Well, the feud started on, 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 a, on, on another topic, but uh, maybe we can get to that in a little bit. All right. Um, yeah. So really the song is about, it's, it's, it's an attack on tabloid journalism and, and, and I didn't know this until researching it, but that explains that whole, you're a vegetable line, which I never understood. I was like, what the heck is he talking about? And, and the line is they eat off of you, you're a vegetable. And what he's talking about there is just being cannibalized by the tabloids. 
it definitely puts it in better context because yeah. that was not, you know, as a, as a younger person listening to that song, I had zero context of what the heck he was talking about there. Yeah. And not only that, it kind of took me out of the song a little bit because it sounded nonsensical. Also, the song references, there's a line, you know, obviously we're going to get to Billie Jean, but he references Billie Jean in this song too. There's a line that, or, or, or a, a verse that says, Billie Jean is always talking when nobody else is talking, telling lies and rubbing shoulders. So they called her mouth a motor. So Billie Jean is a real person and Billie Jean accused Michael of fathering a child, which, you know, we get to in the Billie Jean song. So this was something that was really real for Michael. And Quincy didn't even want him to name the song Billie Jean because of that. And he didn't want Billie Jean's name in this song because of that. So, um, yeah, she, she was a real person. So and for, for me, this song is post disco. So it, it's very much still disco ish mm -hmm. feeling. But it's it's that next step post disco, and it's it's a great song. Yeah, and it's got a great beat and uh, great uh, overlapping drum lines. It's 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 a very good song. All right, so what's next? Baby, be mine. Thoughts? I, I think Baby, be mine is is an underrated track on this album. I think it could have been released as a single. It wasn't. I'm not sure why it wasn't. Um, I think it could have been successful, especially at the time. Like, I, you know, I listened to it. I'm like, it's it's a good song. It's not it's not, you know, anything that stands out enormously, you know, because I haven't heard it a million times. But I think it could have been released as a single. For me, Baby Be Mine, I feel the same way where on first blush, I was like, well, this is definitely one of my least favorite songs on the album. And it still is. But that in a nine song album where you've got a bunch of, you know, top 10 hits being number eight isn't the worst thing in the world. But at the end of the day, it's like, eh, it's all right. Not bad. Yep. I like the song because I haven't heard it a million times. It isn't something I'll remember greatly after, you know, after time, this will kind of slip away as you know, the rest of the songs I've heard a million times and mm -hmm. they'll stick with me. Okay. So what's the uh, next track? The girl is mine. The doggone girl is mine. <laughs> <laughs> the doggone girl is mine. Oh, well, you're really serious. Supposedly McCartney had such a problem with doggone. And he's like, I am not singing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, you know, considering the, the incredible lyrics that Paul has written over the years, I don't know how he sang any of this schlock. <laughs> schlock is the right I mean, word. Yes. This is schlock. I, I, you'll, you'll see in the show notes that I put in, um, my favorite part of this song is also the worst part of this song. It's it's so bad that it's good, and it's the the spoken dialogue between Paul and Mike back and forth. Oh, it's priceless. So, yeah, you know we we can we can leave it. We can cut it. But I'm gonna ask you. I put the I put the dialogue in here, and let's let's do it. You be Paul, and I'll be Michael. All right. Give me give me uh, give me a second. Let me All get right. to it. All right, Michael. We're not going to fight about this, okay? Paul, I think I told you, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I've heard it all before, Michael. She told me that I'm her forever lover. You know, don't you remember? Well, after loving me, she said she couldn't love another. Is that what she said? Yes, she said it. You keep dreaming. <laughs> I mean... How, priceless. Absolutely priceless. How could Sir Paul agree to record this? I mean... Oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> so, 
so what's worse uh, the doggone girl is mine or this i mean it, it's it's all bad so, right? so like this is this is so bad it's it's funny yeah the doggone girl is bad the doggone girl is mine is awful it's like awful. i just every time i hear it i'm just like oh my god yeah. like i i just the song is so corny yeah so anyway so that's what, all i've got to say about the girl is mine all right, next up, last track on side one is the title track, Thriller. So, you know, I struggle with this one. I don't know. Do I like this song or is it just that the video is so iconic? I can't quite tell. So I would say that personally, I like the song, but it's hard to separate it from the video. Mm-hmm. It, it, it truly is hard to separate it from the video because the imagery just jumps to mind. Like I, when I hear the song, I see the video mm-hmm. because I've, I've seen it so many times. I've heard the song so many times, but the two really go hand in hand for me. You know, it's, it's almost, it's, it's almost like a, a movie where you, you you can hear a line and you can see what's going on mm-hmm. in the movie. Like it's, it's very much that for me. Yeah. So similar. So I don't know how much I like the song, but I like the cumulative experience, the multimedia experience of it. Well, and when the song was written, the song was written by Rod Temperton, um, who wrote three of the songs on the on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rod Temperton was an incredibly prolific uh, songwriter to begin with. He actually wrote uh, a, a lot of songs that you would have heard of, Boogie Nights, Always and Forever. He wrote Rock With You for Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. Off the Wall for Michael Jackson. He wrote Gimme the Night for George Benson. Um, he wrote uh, Yamo be there for Michael McDonald and James Ingram. So he, he was a prolific songwriter. So he wrote Thriller. And when he wrote it, the, the title of the song was actually Starlight. And they were originally going to call the album Midnight Man. And they just didn't love the name of the album. And it supposedly it came to them like thinking about it. Oh, one word, Thriller. And they reworked the song Starlight and they just plugged the words in Mm -hmm. and it became Thriller and it worked. And I think the coolest part of of the song, and I actually, um, I love the Vincent Price part. I actually really love the extended cut that they didn't play with Vincent Price where he actually has another another couple of lines. It's really cool. Yeah. And and so speaking of the Vincent Price of it, um, it turns out that he was uh, brought into the project not even by Michael, but through Quincy, but really Quincy via uh, Peggy Lipton, who was Quincy's wife at the time. And uh, she had a relationship with Price and he agreed to do this. And he was offered a choice on how to get paid. Did you see this one? I I know how much he got paid, but I didn't know he was offered a choice. He was offered a choice between a percentage of the, I don't know if it's the song or the album, but basically a back end cut on something related to this album or what was it like $2,000? A $1,000. He took $1,000 versus a cut of this album, which sold 70 million the most copies. Of all, the most of all time. Yes. <laughs> so um, Vincent Price, call your agent. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up side one. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting to have Thriller wrap up the, side one with the, the imagery of what the song is and kind of that it's the whole horror movie classic and, and whatnot. And, you know, the way the first album side comes together, you start off with the, the commentary about the, the media and you end with the commentary on thriller movies and, and whatnot. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's an interesting arc. Yeah, and paranoia, you know, and feeling like you're under attack, you know, so there is a connection there. 
So where do we go for side two? Side two starts out with the rock song, Beat It. So speaking of compensation, you know, everybody knows that Eddie Van Halen does the uh, guitar uh, solo here. And Bill, tell the fans what their what his compensation was. I believe it was zero. Oh, as far as dollars go, yeah. The, but the uh, so the total package, the total compensation package was zero dollars and a twelve pack. And a twelve pack, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Eddie, come over. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll pay you in beer. So <laughs> <laughs> so so think about it. So Vincent Price and Eddie Van Halen, who in and of themselves are enormous stars, they they participated in the biggest album of all time and essentially got paid nothing. It's amazing. Yeah. So beat it also, you know, as with you were saying with thriller, I I can't hear it without seeing it in my mind, seeing the video. Well, and as I understand the video had members of the Crips and the bloods in it, in this anti-gang violence song, in in this anti-gang violence song. Yes. (laughs) Did they know what they were doing? I guess. I don't know. (laughs) So I, uh, so so maybe this will be a good time just to mention that you know why I haven't liked this album is or it's just I've you know you've heard the hits so many times growing up and and I just had no interest in hearing them again and again to be honest I'm not going to after we're done here you know I'm done with this but I did appreciate hearing Eddie uh, and his solo again because it, it is pretty it's a, great it's a it's a tremendous guitar solo and, and i would not call this one of my favorite albums of all time but it is i do seriously consider it one of the best albums of all time and and the the, the tracks on it stand up stand up well in my mind uh in in what they are so and beat it is kind of a genre crossing pop rock ish song and i think it stands up really yeah. well. Well, and it was, as we were talking about before, it was crucial to getting it on pop radio. What I love about how the solo came together was Eddie shows up to record and he asks Quincy, you know, what do you want me to do? You know, like give me some parameters. And Quincy basically says, I brought you in here to do what you do. You do whatever will make it work. And, and gosh, they sure, they sure did. Yep. All right. What's next? So second track side two is probably the biggest hit on the album, Billie Jean. Um, it, it is the first single um, that was a huge success. It's the starting of the moonwalk with the pop culture reference. Tremendous song. And, and you hear the lyrics of the song. It really comes across as a, a hurt Michael Jackson. Like he, he's really telling what seems to be a very personal story mm-hmm. in, in, this, in this song. And it comes across. It feels real. And talking about the impact of videos again, this is another one where I don't hear it without, you know, seeing oh, 100%. The, seeing the, the 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 bricks lighting up as he's uh, walking along, and it's just such and the the dancing in the, the video, it's like the first my first exposure to dancing like that. A hundred percent, yeah, and that that video really kind of started that it started the whole chain of all of this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and you know, you're going back to what you were talking about you know, the album being, you know, not necessarily a favorite, but a best. And when we're talking about all that context, you can't overstate how impactful this album is. It basically changed everything. Everything that we experience today in pop music is because of this album. It is the 80s Mm -hmm. Sgt. Peppers. 
That's really that's how I look at it. It it is it is it did almost as much for music as Sgt. Pepper's did in my mind. And that's for me why it's in my my gotcha. best albums list. Because it has impacted popular music from the point where to it was today. released. Absolutely. Till today. Yep. Okay. What's next? Human nature. And this this one's interesting. So this is one of the ones mm-hmm. that Michael didn't write. Um, so some of some of the um, performing artists yeah, the on the musicians. album, um, they, he actually had he actually had several members of the band Toto mm-hmm. performing on this album, and they gave Quincy uh, a tape with a few songs that they thought might be good for the album. And Quincy listened to the tape, and he didn't like the songs that he had. But there, at the end of the tape, there was a little snippet of something that he just left there, and he said, well, "What about this one?" Uh, and Jeff Picaro. Guys from the band, you know, Steve Picaro basically had to cobble it together and and put it together, and it wound so, up becoming Human Nature. Just to um, add on to that story, so the the band was you know recording tracks and stuff to present to Quincy for for this, but they were reusing tape. So it was it was a leftover piece. It wasn't something they accidentally you know that they put in there. Yeah, they, they didn't intend to send. Yeah, they didn't it was just to supposed to. Yes. It was just already there because they were recording over it. So when they were done with the things that they were sending to Quincy, then you know they cut, and then you've got this this leftover music, and that's the stuff that Quincy liked. So that's how we got Human Nature. <laughs> it's a pretty cool way right? for the song to come yeah. about. And it's a good song. It's, yep. it's a really good song. All right. And are we almost done? Is that seven? So what's number eight? PYT? We got PYT, which is written by James Ingram and Quincy Jones. Uh, and th- this one, this this is one of the songs that kind of jumps out at me off this album as uh, you know, a song that I, I actually didn't originally remember that it was on this album. And I'm like, wow, that was on this album too? Holy cow. That's why this album was so freaking huge. Just a great song. Yeah, I, I, I like this song too. And when I think about the songs on this album and I think about Michael Jackson, they're they're actually kind of funny, right? I mean, you've got Baby Be Mine, The Girl Is Mine, Wanna Be Starting Something, Pretty Young Thing. I don't know. It, it, it's... <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's got a little it's creepy kind of vibe weird, to it. <laughs> and maybe it is kind of michael but it's it's uh it's good P- pyt is just a great song there's there's nothing to say because it's not like anything uh incredible it's just it's just a great song all right just so now we get to yeah. number nine lady in my life uh probably my least favorite track on the album it doesn't stand out for me at all um and if i never hear yeah, it again it same. would be too soon it's 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 almost a shame you know it's almost a shame that it's on here yeah. Should have been an, should have been an A track mm-hmm. should have been an A track album. I think we've said this a few times with albums. Yeah. Like you don't need to use the full time. So okay, so then we won't waste any more time talking about it. That's it for the track list. So let's see what's the next segment. Is this where we uh, wrap up the song poll? This is where we close the song draft from the pre- prior week, and we do our song draft for this week. And I know you're excited about this song draft this week because, well, <laughs> let's close it and we'll talk about it. So. So I am officially closing the polls. We are no longer ex- accepting votes, Tone. And would you like to guess how, how it went this, this, this past I'm week? I'm so scarred from all the abuse that I've taken in these past drafts that I, I don't want to guess. I feel, like, I feel like there's only one answer, but I definitely could be wrong. So tell me. Give me the, give me the bad news. So, Tony, you won going away this week. Uh, it wasn't close. 
it, it, you won oh, going away. Well, that's that's a relief because if if I if I didn't win this week, then there's going to be there's no hope. For well, me. I, and I think what it came down to, especially in talking to a, f- a few people who listen to the podcast, I think what it came down to is the down album selections. Uh, where you know, once we got to track five, so the, the first four tracks. I think you mm-hmm. could kind of go a few different ways, you know, where, where you pick Thunder Road and Born to Run. I took Jungle Land and Backstreets. Those four songs. Those can, are clearly like, the you best can, You can songs. argue mm-hmm. which ones you like better, which ones are better. Yeah. They're all phenomenal songs. But you go down album, and I think that's where, I think that's where you won. The, so, so essentially 10th Avenue Freeze Out is better. Then, then she's the one. 10th mm-hmm. Avenue Freeze Out is what won it for you in my mind. Yes. All right. Well, good. So I won. I'm happy. So uh, am I two and five? Is that the standings now? You are two and well, that was, that was episode eight. So you're two and six. Two and six. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to start a streak here and this will be a two game, two match winning streak. Here we go. All right. Well, um, since Tony selected thriller, that means I get first selection this week and I am going to select with the first selection <laughs> in this week's song draft at pick one, Bill will select Billy Jean. Billy Jean, good pick. So um, I mentioned that last week I also did, or last show I did a mock draft, and I, I you and, I feel you like and your the mock, mock draft helped me. So I called on some uh, um, dear friends of ours, the Schwartz family, John and Trisha in Texas, were very kind and participated in a mock draft with me. And I feel like I've got some really good Intel here, but you know, being the contrarian, they told me what I should take in this spot and I'm not going to follow up their lead. <laughs> 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 uh, so sorry, Schwartz's I'm taking beat it with my first pick. All right. Um, with the third pick, um, I'm going to take, what I think is probably actually my favorite song on the album. Uh, oh, that was Colleen's favorite. Oh, now I'm, now I'm stuck. You've got me again where I'm a little confused. Um, so I'm, wow. So I'm going to go PYT against my better judgment because I just flat out like PYT better. Um, and I'll just see what you do here. This is hard. Um, I'm, I'm, I know what Lexi's telling me to do because I did, I did chat with her about it, her and Shannon uh, and Chris gave me her thoughts as well. So I, I, I know what they would okay, tell me. So to take. wait a minute. Um, so you did. A mock draft I didn't, too? I, no, I didn't. I, I did not do a mock draft. We went, we went through the, the songs and kind of like talked about what we think the order right. of the songs is. All right. So um, let's see. Um, you know, I'm going to have to go with thriller tone. Wow. So to you wanted to go somewhere else, huh? Well, I was instructed to go somewhere else, okay. but I'm going to go with Thriller. Uh, yeah. So John and Trisha told me to go Thriller number one. So the fact that you got it all the way down at number five is a win for you, at least probably in their eyes. Yeah, I'm torn. The, the right answer is human nature here. So I think I'm going to do that. Yep, that's what I was torn with. That was the one I was going to take. So that's what Lexi told me to take. Well, my but my goddaughter listen, so. is very smart. Thank you, Lexi. <laughs> um, I am going to go with the corny as hell. The girl is mine. And I'm, oh. I'm going to love having that cheese sandwich on my team. <laughs> I, I secretly really wanted this one. 
because um, <laughs> the more I think, I'm like, I'm smiling just thinking about that awful dialogue and just, oh god, oh it's great, it's 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 so great, and it's so Paul great. Ha- you know, he just has to know how terrible it was. You know, I mean, gosh, but he sings it with a big smile on his face. Yeah, Paul's know, just Paul the best. Probably got paid. Oh. And speaking of feuds, right? I mean, we didn't even touch on Michael buying the Apple Music, the Beatles music catalog. Oh, they stopped. They stopped. Talk, yeah. They stopped talking. Yeah, that, that, that was you know they they did yeah. say say say, and they didn't. They never talked again. Well, basically, I might be a lover and not a fighter, but I'm not going to stop from buying your music catalog. Uh, <laughs> it, might, it might have been worth it to do this album just to have <laughs> you do a Michael Jackson voice. That, <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to go Baby Be Mine, underrated, pretty that's, decent song. That's know. the right pick. Yeah, that's that's the right pick. Um, and that leaves me the last song on the album at number nine. Lady, the lady oh, in my life. It's, it's not good. It's, it's not good. It's not just the least good song on the album. It's a not good song. So, 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 so Tony, if you were to tell me coming into the draft – that I, I could have gotten Wanna Be Starting Something and Thriller on top of getting my number one Billie Jean, I would have told you you were crazy. There was no way I was getting that. So I am very, very, very happy with my with my song yeah. draft this week. So I, I so to, re- <laughs> to, to kind of put a summary on where we yeah. are, and then we can chat about it for a minute. At number one, Billie Jean. At number three, You Wanna Be Starting Something. At number five, Thriller. At number seven, The Girl Is Mine. And at number nine, the lady in my life, make up Team Bill. Team Tony is beat it at number one. PYT is number two. My third is Human Nature. And my fourth is Baby Be Mine. I- I'm kind of surprised you didn't listen and pick yeah. Thriller. I-, I think I did this for a, a prior... No, I know I did this in a prior show where I wrote down the rank my rankings before the show and I'm staring at my rankings and I had thriller number two. So I had a chance to have my number one and number two and I didn't, I, I, I went with PYT instead and I'm probably going to live to regret it. All right. All right. Well, we will put it out there and let the fans decide. So that closes out our song draft for this week. All right. Tone, I think that takes us to final thoughts on the yeah, album. So I'll start and just, you know, I, I guess I, I said this a couple of times, so I, I'll be brief here. Iconic album, great videos, incredibly important to music as we know it today. And just this is the last time I'm going to listen to this for, you know, possibly the rest of my life. So thank you for, I guess, giving me an opportunity to revisit this. And I'm going to say thank you, Michael, and goodbye, Thriller. Tony, for me, this album really impacted me in like the prime of me growing up. So I look at what the album was, how big it was in media. We didn't have social media at the time. We had TV and videos. uh, And I look at how big and all-consuming it was at the time. It was incredibly impactful then. And then I look at what it actually has done for popular music over the past 40 years mm-hmm. now, basically. Um, it it has been one of the most impactful albums like we were talking about before. So that's why I put it as one of my best albums. Is it one of my favorites? No, I don't think it is. But it does have a few songs on it that I think are just special. And you know, it's something that I will 
not change the station whenever I hear one of those songs. So I don't know that I'm going to go back to listening to this album end to end anytime soon, but I will enjoy it when tracks from this album come on and I will, it, they'll always make me smile. They'll always make me think of a time in my life when I was younger and maybe <laughs> a little bit more innocent and could you know, not understand everything that was going on in the world. And um, I, I really, really, really think this album's had a tremendous impact on both me personally and in music over the past 40 years. So that is why I rank it my number 13 album of all time. Number 13, not bad. So Tone, I think that probably closes up all of the stuff that we have on Michael Jackson this week. All right, so that wraps up this show, this episode. So thank you for listening to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Our next episode is going to feature what album, Bill? So Tony, the next episode is going to feature the album that I've listened to the most in my lifetime. Okay. Really? I have listened to this album the most of any album I have ever, ever listened to. Start to finish, I've probably listened to this album over 100 times easily in my life. And in the 90s, I listened to it nonstop. Even currently, I listen to it a lot. It's probably the album I've listened to the most in my life. Huh. I never would have guessed that. Never mind. Absolutely, Absolutely love Nirvana. Absolutely love the album. And can't wait to talk about it next week. All right, well, this should be a treat. I can't wait. Get your uh, get your grunge on. Get ready to have some fun. Go to Seattle, and uh, we're going to listen to some awesome rock music this week. Sounds good. All right, well, thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. All right, wait, Tone. I think I've got a little bit more for us here. Let's talk a little bit about Prince and Michael Jackson and their rivalry. All right, let's hear it. All right, so the whole starting point of the feud between Michael Jackson and Prince was this event that happened where Prince was nobody Mm -hmm. at the time. Okay. He basically had just had the 1999 album purple rain hadn't, hadn't been out yet. You know, he had a couple of songs that were radio hits. He was the up and coming cool guy, but like nobody knew who he was. So James Brown is doing this, concert and it just so happens that michael jackson and prince are both there so james brown gets a tip from somebody that michael jackson's in the audience and he calls him up and michael jackson comes up on stage and james brown's like you got to sing something you got to do something so he gives him the microphone and michael jackson just proceeds to sing i love you i love you i love you a million different ways and then does a you know slick michael jackson dance and james brown dance and you know gives him the thing back and you think Mm -hmm. that's it And then he leans over to James Brown and he whispers something in his ear. Well, what I've read is that he said to James Brown, there's a guy named Prince in the audience and you need to call him up on stage. James Brown's like, who? He had no idea who Prince was at the time. Didn't really know his music, didn't know his stuff. So he's like, all right, Michael wants me to call him up. I'm going to call him up. So he calls Prince up on stage. Prince comes up on stage and it is like classic 80s Prince. He's got Mm -hmm. the hair. He's got the ruffled shirt. You know, it is like classic '80s Prince, and you you know, and you've got classic '80s Michael in his military, you know, Sergeant Peppery regalia and whatnot. So you've got classic '80s Prince, classic '80s Michael, and they're both on stage with James Brown. And James Brown's like, "Oh, you got to do something. You got to you got to play something. You got to do something because Michael said you got to come up here." So he he gets handed a guitar. Now I've I've heard that the guitar was actually strung lefty, so he gets handed this guitar. 
and he starts and i mean prince is just right. like a ridiculous guitarist so he starts playing and it's nothing spectacular it just kind of sounds odd and the explanation that the guitar was strung lefty actually makes more sense to me because like when you hear the playing it's just strange so he plays for a few seconds and then he gets down and he, he's got the he's grinding with the guitar and he's like doing all this like odd stuff with the guitar and he gets up and he rips his shirt off and he's strutting around stage with no shirt on. And then he decides to just walk off stage. And James Brown's set had this like uh, lamppost thing that wasn't really mm -hmm. a lamppost. And Prince decides to like try to swing down off of it. And he takes <laughs> the lamppost down. <laughs> and Michael Jackson is giggling his freaking head off. And he got such a kick out of Prince making a fool of himself that Prince was angry about it forever. And Michael loved it forever. And so th that was kind of the start of it. And then there was a ping pong match that subsequently happened as well. That was, that was kind of interesting. Phenomenal. Where uh, did you hear about the ping pong match? No. Okay. All right. So ping pong match. So this is post purple rain and, and whatnot. Prince, Prince was angry about this whole thing with, with uh, uh, James, James Brown. Brown. And this, this mm -hmm. is like floating around forever. And like, you know, my God, he made a fool of me and you know, whatnot. So he, and Quincy Jones, there's an interview with Quincy Jones where Quincy said that, Prince was so angry after the James Brown incident that he sat in his limo outside of the outside of the LA forum and waited for Michael to come out and he was going to run him over. Like, like <laughs> Quincy Jones said, Prince was going to run Michael Jackson over. Okay. So cut to a few years later and it's the set of, um, I think it was under the cherry moon Prince was recording mm -hmm. and Michael just happens to stop by. Michael was recording captain EO or whatever. And he comes by and Prince is playing ping pong with one of his cast or crew or whatever on, on the set. And he says, Michael, you want to play ping pong? You ever play ping pong? And, and Michael, you know, it's not like Mr. Athlete necessarily. Uh, and Michael's like, okay, do the Michael say, sure, I'll play ping pong. Sure, I'll play ping pong. <laughs> so picture Michael Jackson and Prince. Picture, if you will, <laughs> Michael Jackson and Prince playing ping pong. So. Prince is like, you know, slamming the ball at Michael. You want me to spike it? You want me to spike it? And he's like hitting Michael left and right. Michael drops his paddle, covers his face, and Prince hits him in the crotch with the ball. And he proceeds to do a dance around like all happy, and Michael storms off. <laughs> oh, my God. We need to see a dramatic reenactment of that. <laughs> well, we can we can do a dramatic reenactment on the pickleball clip pickleball court tone <laughs> well I'm, I'm gonna have to recover from my uh, my pickleball injuries which i still haven't recovered from so anyway so the, the the whole drama between the two of them you know just two very different characters you've got the guy who was the you know star from when he was 11 years old who was kind of you know royalty the whole you know career wise and then you got the guy who's the up-and-comer who was prince who was yeah. you know who did it very differently you got michael Michael, oh, who yeah. did who did the mainstream all the way, and Michael mm -hmm. put out Thriller, and then when he came back with Bad, he went he went straight mainstream again, and he wanted mm -hmm. bigger. Like he did the biggest yeah. selling album of all time, and he went after it again with Bad, and he thought Bad was a horrible failure, and Bad was an incredibly su successful album, but nothing was going to be as successful as Thriller. Exactly, yeah. But Prince went a completely different direction. You know, Prince went the he put out Purple Rain. He's like, okay, I put out the best album I am ever going to put out. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put out stuff that I want to put out. And he puts out this amazing string of artistic albums. And if you look at his impact on artists over the past 40 years, it's similar because 
you've got a lot of artists who follow the Michael Jackson track and you've got a lot of artists that follow the Prince track and how they do things. It's just a well, different, a different approach. I, I would, and I've thought about this for 10 seconds. I would argue that Michael's impact is more cultural and on the music landscape itself. Whereas Prince's impact on music, like musicians uh, wise is, is much greater. Definitely more impactful on musicians per se. Yeah. Yes. But, but as far as how they produced art, you have a very going after trying to get popular stuff versus I'm going to just put out the stuff that is important to me and impactful to me. Different approach. 